0: It's a it's a it's a it's a Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's Accent of Women, we take a step back into history and look at early Japanese communist women. Shomi Yun is a member of the International Socialist Organization in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Shomi herself is from Japanese origins and was a keynote speaker at the Marxism conference held in 2014. Commencing this week and concluding next week, here's Shami Yun with her keynote address.
1: First of all, I'd just like to thank you everyone for being here and uh, thank you to Socialist Alternative for giving me the opportunity to speak on this issue. And I'd also like to express uh, warm greetings from um, Aiso and Aotearo to all the comrades here today. Um, So I'll just get on with the talk of um, the early Japanese communist woman. Um, so I'll start. What sort of woman are you demonstrating when you should be looking after your children? These were the words that the arresting officer said to uh, Sadayol Nakasone, who was arrested um, for participating as a woman in the first, uh, the second May Day in 1921. Um, and uh, Nakasone, the female uh, socialist, fired back at the... Um, the, uh, the cop saying, well, what sort of man are you? A proletarian who works for the capitalists. Take a look at yourself. <laughs> you get the sense of the fire that these women have. Um And Nakasone, the female socialist, um, along with 20 other uh, socialists on that day, made history in Japan uh, as the first female contingent to march on the second uh, May Day in Japan. <clears throat> They were all arrested under uh, for marching under the banner of Sekirankai, or uh, Red Wave in um, in, uh, in English, um, and it was an organisation that was established specifically to march in the um, in the second May Day in 1921. But that was their specific aim, but they had a wider motivation as well to. Um, to engage in the struggle to overthrow capitalism and fight for genuine women's liberation. <clears throat> um, I should say that uh, even though it was 1921 that these women came out as a contingent, women have always been involved in the socialist communist movement from the earliest of days uh, in the early uh, 18, 19, uh, the 1900s. Um, but the second May Day, so the second May Day the, is a continuation of the kind of struggle that had already been um, happening. Um, I think one of the reasons why the woman decided to come out in March as a contingent in 1921 is probably more symptomatic of the wider political um, struggle that was happening domestically within Japan but also internationally. And it was this wider kind of excitement um, and political climate that pushed women out onto the streets in Tokyo in 1921. The class was on the move, the working class was on the move, revolutionary ferment was in the air, uh, not only in Japan but worldwide, and the red wave woman definitely wanted to be part of this. <clears throat> so, and I think the, the story of the red wave woman, I'm really glad Social Opportunity decided to put on a talk like this because it has been one that is largely hidden from history um, in the most definitive way. Uh, uh, English, uh, they're all English um, texts that I refer to in this talk um, but uh, in the most English, uh, definitive English language history of this period from the Communist Party um, is, is this one um, by George Beckman and Okubo Genji, the Japanese Communist Party 1922 to 1945 you these women do not get mentioned at all so um, it is it re- really took to the 1970s and 80s um when japanese uh historians and feminists um, and academics started uncovering a lot of this history that has been hidden um and uh i'll just mention this one i don't know if people have come across this mickey sohane's book on reflections on the way to the gallows this is a really great introduction of a lot of the radical revolutionary women that were alive around this time and also his other book um Peasants, Rebels and Outcasts is also a really fantastic uh, read as well for anyone who wants to learn more about the role of women within this uh, particular history. And also Australian academic Vera Mackey has written expe- extensively on this. So um, just look her up on Google and you'll see the books, that publications that she's uh, written. So what I want to do in this talk is just to give you an introduction of these um, pioneering women. Um and uh, consider their achievements, um, and also offer some questions about their political legacy. Um, their I think their contribution is far is not known at all in the English speaking world, and so that's part of what what I want to do here, just to uh, give an overview of what their uh, contributions were, and to pay tribute to I suppose our collective uh, political revolutionary ancestors, because <clears throat> uh, I, I want to argue that re- way. Uh, while they were small, they did achieve something real. Uh, the rebellious presence in the second May Day forced open some space for women to be able to attend subsequent May Days in Japan. And uh, the militants who made up red wave, rebellious youth like uh, Magara Sakai, who's this woman here, um, were part of a worldwide radicalisation in the years following World War I. And their activities flowed into the wider sea of revolutionary organising and activity. So, um, so what were the origins of Red Wave? Um, and as I mentioned, Red Wave was uh, primarily established so that women could march as a contingent on the second May Day. Um, there was uh, the Peace Preservation Law, Article Five of that, which was a law at the time which absolutely prohibited women from engaging in any political activity of any kind. So. Women weren't allowed to attend political meetings. They weren't certainly allowed to hold rallies, and they certainly couldn't uh, become members of a political organisation. So it was that Article 5 was absolutely hated. It was, you know, people despised this article that essentially confined women to a home. Um, so the Red Wave, even while it was a female contingent, it wasn't created out of some kind of autonomous organising ideal. Um, It was much more like a practical uh, practical way of trying to get around this law um, of Article 5. Uh, One of the Red Wave founding members, uh, Sako Kutsumi, puts it like this. um, At the time, women could not enter the Socialist League, which was the affiliation that they were loosely associated with, in a satisfactory manner. In order to participate in the second May Day, we quickly decided to establish a group consisting of women only. Um, so, this gives you a sense of it was more like a practical, tactical necessity rather than wanting to organize as women on their own. <clears throat> so, what was this socialist league that uh, Kusumi is talking about? Um, and I should say, all of the women in Red Wave had some loose affiliate or had some you know, real connection to the socialist, socialist league um, through their partners or through family members. And it was a broad alliance uh, between anarcho syndicalists and socialists. At its peak, it had a membership of a 1,000, so still, you know, reasonably small. Um, But the League was established out of um, this desire to uh, establish a revolutionary current um, against the moderate and larger uh, trade union federation, uh, URK, that was um, around at the time. Um, And they were called a friendly society, which kind of gives you an a sense of what kind of trade union they they were. They were much more moderate in their aims, and the Socialist League wanted to um, establish themselves as this distinct revolutionary current, separate to this. Uh, Unfortunately, this league was short-lived. An alliance between anarcho-syndicalists and socialists, who were socialists who were increasingly becoming influenced by the ideas of Leninism and Lenin, uh, couldn't last forever, obviously. And if anything, the tide of anarchism that was the dominant ideological uh, uh, ideology, ideology at the time was um, beginning to ebb. And much more the ascendancy of the Leninist model of organising, the fact that we need to have a revolutionary party, um, especially after the successful uh, Russian Revolution in 1917, caused revolutionaries in Japan, socialists in, revolution, uh, socialists in Japan, to seriously reassess what kind of tactical... Uh, political strategies we need to pursue. Um, So whilst there was this uh, reassessment going on, it's fair to say that they were never uh, very clear about what Leninism and the Leninist model of uh, building a mass revolutionary party was about. Um, Lenin's first work to enter Japan, uh, translated into Japanese, came in 1920, so three years afterwards, uh, after the Russian Revolution, Um, And it's fair to say that the the leaders of the uh, JSP, the Japan Socialist, uh, not the JSP, the JSA, the Socialist uh, Socialist League, sorry, uh, Hitoshi Yamakawa and Toshiyuki Sakai, were still very much influenced by um, anarcho-syndicalist ideas. And a lot of the strategies that they pursued, particularly around um, universal suffrage, they were were opposed to uh, that idea, um, saying that it was it was, um, and they were quite ultra left on this idea, and I think very much influenced by the anarcho syndicalist ideas. <clears throat> um, and they kind of uh, denounced anyone who was uh, calling on a campaign for universal suffrage, saying that it was um, it was it was a compromise and it would uh, mislead uh, the working class in Japan at the time, but. Um, yeah, and this kind of background, overall background, is important for Red Wave, but I'll get into that a bit more later. <clears throat> so the political situation at the time is quite important to, to know about as well, um, because I think that's the most important thing to understand um, in understanding what pushed Red Wave women to organise out onto the streets. <clears throat> so the, the end of World War One. Heralded an economic uh, a heralded an end to the economic boom that Japan had enjoyed during the war, and recession hit hard for uh, the workers, um, and this ignited a, a worker dissatisf- dissatisfaction and resentment, especially about the gap between uh, the wage, uh, the, the wage prices, and price rises. Um, workers began to fight back in this uh, in this situation. And just to give you a numerical picture of this, in 1914, so World War One begins, there were just 50 Labor disputes um, that involved 7,904 workers. Um, and five years later, in 1919 there was a total of 497 disputes with 63,137 <coughs> participants. So a phenomenal outbreak of uh, workers' uh, struggle. But, I mean, to contextualise, it is, it is small numbers when we're talking, uh, if we compare it to international statistics, but nonetheless significant for Japan. Um, and this resentment, you can really get a sense of it uh, in Hane's other book, uh, Rebel, Peasant Rebels and Outcasts. Sorry, it's not this one, but... Um, the, the sense of the the, the enormous pressure and uh, oppression of workers, particularly women in uh, textile factories where, you know, Japan's military might was off the back and tears and uh, horror that these women experienced in the huge capital accumulation that was going on in Japan at the time. Um, so this resentment broke out after World War <clears> One. <throat> um and I think one of the things that really uh, spooked the ruling class at the time was a riot that happened in Ashio in uh, 19, uh, 1907, um, and uh, that was that was something that uh, Ashio is a quite a remote uh, area in a, a copper mining town, um, and there were uh, three days of intense rioting where miners used dynamite to um, an arson and destroyed whole sections of the mine. And you know, at the time it was Japan's most modern uh, mining complex. Um, The government had to go in, declare martial law, and uh, the troops needed to eventually uh, suppress the workers themselves.
0: And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. You're listening here to Shomi Yun from the International Socialist Organisation of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Shomi is speaking about early Japanese communist women.
1: And also I think the other big international content for this is the Russian Revolution in 1917. Uh, This served as enormous inspirations for uh, the socialists to really seriously try and get organised and um, try and make something of it. Um, Up until then, after Ashure, the state just went on a massive crackdown on all revolutionaries and it's it's generally called... um, And uh, there was an incident called the Great Treason Incident in 1911 which involved the state coming up with these, you know, concocted charges against uh, a number of the most uh, prominent revolutionaries at the time um, and executing them. So it was, it was called in Japan, it's been called the winter, the winter years where basically nothing much happened during that time. Um... But again, the Russian Revolution in 1917 <coughs> brought an end to those winter years, and uh, the socialists were willing to throw themselves into activity again. <clears throat> Another important domestic uh, incident that happened around this time was in 1918 uh, when uh, there was a peaceful protest by women from a fishing village demanding an end to the high price of rice. And this erupted into nationwide riots. Mm-hmm. Um, In a couple of weeks, the riots spread throughout the country um, and, as figures say, upwards of 2 million people were involved in this. Um, And it took the military uh, months to actually shut down the rioters nationwide Um, and so great was the breakdown of public order at this time that the then Prime Minister had to step down and Japan at the time appointed its first common Commoner prime minister as a, as a kind of a conciliation to try and, you know, as a carrot to try and quell that, that mass resentment that had broken out. <clears throat> um, so these rice riots obviously tapped into a general dissatisfaction um, of the rural poor, of the urban poor, um, who were reeling from the long hours of slave-like conditions, which was a product of the breakneck industrialisation, capital accumulation and militarisation that was going on in Japan at the time. So all of this political context was further evidence for the socialists that there was increasing class consciousness. So uh, Sakai, well, Magara Sakai, um, a revolutionary here, she says of this time, given this momentum, um, she's also one of the founders and core leaders of Red Wave, um, she said it was only natural that women were going to be spurred into activity. Uh, there was obviously an urgency that was propelling socialist women uh, into getting active, and Magara was deeply affected by socialist slogans like uh, there is no true liberation without female emancipation, and women are the last slaves." <clears throat> and what she took uh, from these slogans was that um, it was the lack of female participation in these revolutionary movements that was actually holding the uh, the process of revolution back. So it, I, I'd say it was Perhaps a bit um, voluntarist, but you know it was her sentiment. I've got to get in there. I've got to get start organising. I've got to start getting active. Um, so, what were Red Wave's aims and ambitions at this time? <clears throat> so, like I said, marching on May Day was their most immediate um, reason for establishing Red Wave. Um, but these women had other greater aims as well. And uh, Margaret wrote the simple founding statement. Um, it's just a Two sentences long, we are opposed to the tyranny that has made our brothers and sisters ignorant and impoverished, which has bound them to slavery and a life of obscurity. We stand in firm opposition to such oppression. But it's fairly simple. Um, but I think what's evident here in these two sentences is her attempt to delineate or separate Red Wave from the dominant feminist thought that was around at the time. She's trying to make clear that it's not feminism but socialism which is at the heart of the group's politics. And I think her references to brothers and sisters uh, in a common fight against slavery and a life of obscurity is indicative of this. And again, uh, we stand in firm opposition indicates that she saw women and men as comrades against a common enemy, which was the capitalist class. <clears throat> um, and moreover, that she wants to stress that it was the system itself that was at the heart of the oppression. <clears throat> um, and uh, Kikue Yamakawa, who is this woman here, um, also another founding member of Red Wave, um, she makes this, this kind of uh, delineation more explicit in the manifesto that Red Wave wrote, but I'll go into that later. <clears throat> so while their aims were set high, they wanted to overthrow the system, they were actually quite humble and um, uh, realised the they had a realistic image of themselves. The term red wave is not a literal translation I'm a translator so I get quite finicky about these things mm-hmm. uh, that's for me, Japanese students <laughs> the red wave society but this term here, wave uh, it's more like a ripple so it's, it's, it's actually the, the literal translation would be red ripple society that's that's the kind of impact that uh, these women hope to have on Japanese society a, a small ripple <clears throat> So, you know, there was, a, there was a humility to, I suppose, their understanding of the limitations and the potential in- impact that these women could have, uh, which was, yeah. So I want to go into a political profile of uh, Kikue Yamakawa, who was one of the women that I pointed out earlier. <coughs> and she also authored the Red Waves um, Manifesto. <coughs> so that's uh, Kikue here. Um, she was um, from a, she was highly intellectual, and she came from a relatively affluent samurai uh, family. Um, <clears throat> so her relative privilege uh, enabled her to continue on her education until high school, and it was something both her parents uh, really encouraged in her um, to follow her academic pursuits. Um, and as a socialist writer, and uh, she really before she joined Red Wave. She really uh, cuts her political teeth debating uh, Seto, the blue-stocking group, a liberal and bourgeois feminist grouping at the time. Um, she was highly critical of the group and their calls for women's suffrage. <clears throat> so that, again, you can see the influence of um, anarcho-syndicalism there. In one polemic, she criticised the bourgeois feminists for their philanthropist nature toward the uh, toward working women. And she writes... We believe that there are absolutely no methods within a capitalist society which are capable of alleviating the misery of female workers. We believe that it is a sin to squander the strength of weak women workers in the movement to improve working conditions and in the profitless, labour-consuming diet movement, diet being the parliament. <clears throat> that is, any movement which diverges from the only road to salvation for women workers, the destruction of capitalism. But bourgeois gentlewomen, because they cannot trust or imagine a society beyond capitalism, concentrate their energies on ineffective attempts to alleviate the misery of working women. Um, And again, I mean, I think, like I said, this reflects her (laughs) ultra-leftism, and it's impacted by the anarcho-syndicalist ideas, which were the dominant ideas at the time for socialists. Um, But I think, I don't want to make a political gloss over it, but for Kikue, I mean, her reading of the political times was that revolution was a real and present possibility. Revolution was really on the cards. So she felt that any move towards trying to legitimise parliament and the parliamentary process would actually unnecessarily blind workers into a compromise with the system rather than its overthrow. So, again, I don't want to gloss over, I think it was a political error, but, um, yeah, uh, that was, I think, part of their justification at the time. Um, and it's clear that her own views on this changed later, she acknowledged the ultra-leftism, particularly after the Russian Revolution, Um, she made a political break, or attempted to, whilst being still quite heavily uh, influenced by anarcho-syndicalism, and moved towards Bolshevism. And with this move came a more nuanced view, I'd say, of the um, importance of winning the right to vote, and of female participation in that uh, electoral system. Um, uh, Kikau, I should say, though, played quite a peculiar role within Red Wave. She was um, enlisted more as an advisor, so not as an activist, but um, uh, as an advisor to the, to the society. Um, and on, she didn't necessarily march on the day, on May Day, um, but she lent her support in uh, penning their, the manifesto and speaking at public lecturers, uh, fundraising, working bees, so on. <clears throat> so in other, in other words, while she was a peripheral member, um, it was she gave the group some focus uh, through her, her writing. Um, and I'm going to quote uh, the manifesto that Kikoe penned in its entirety, partly because it's the only remaining document that Red Wave actually commissioned. Um, but also it shows, I think, the, the politics that cut against the essentialism that was employed by bourgeois feminists at the time. That, um, and, you know, she really makes explicit the link between capitalism, imperialism and women's oppression in the manifesto. <laughs> So she writes, Mayday is the proletariat's day, the day for us oppressed workers. Women and workers have travelled the same road of ignorance and oppression for countless centuries, but dawn is about to break. The dawn bell first sounded in Russia, moment by moment dispels the dark loom of capitalism and tells of approaching victory. Together with our brothers, let us ring the bell with all our strength to signal the liberation of the proletarian, proletariat in Japan. Women, you have awakened. Join in Mayday. So now this is me. Uh, so it's clear from this uh, first sentence that uh, the Russian Revolution, you know, has this momentous inspirational effect on these women. <coughs> and, you know, this is the main emphasis that they tr- try and encourage women out onto the streets. Uh, the manifesto continues, the Red Wave Society is a woman's, oh, oh this is kikui, by the way. The Red Wave Society is a women's organisation that plans to participate in the enterprise to destroy the capitalist society and build a socialist society. The capitalist society turns us into slaves at home and oppresses us as wage slaves outside the home. This is a society which has driven many of our sisters into prostitution and for the sake of its own aggressive ambitions has taken away our beloved father's lovers, children and brothers. A society which, for the sake of its own greedy profiteers, greets the proletariat of other countries worth artillery and slaughter.
0: <clears throat> that was Shomi Yun from the International Socialist Organisation of Aotearoa, New Zealand, speaking about early Japanese communist women. She was a keynote speaker at the 2014 Marxism Conference hosted by Socialist Alternative and held in Melbourne, Australia. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.